Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. What's going on, everybody? Peace and blessings wherever you may be in the cosmos. This episode of Path and Present is with Hunter Brown. Hunter is a young brother who I met in Bali. He is there studying traditional Balinese music, gamelan music. Um, and he's been there for many months studying that. And we were able to connect through some mutual friends. And we had a really dope conversation about art, sacred art. Um, he has a breadth of knowledge on Eastern art, Buddhist art. And obviously he's looking at, you know, Hindu art, Balinese art. Um, and he's also really interested in science and physics. So physics and metaphysics. So... Uh, we were able to sit down and have a conversation that ranged on a whole bunch of topics, but kind of centered the first half of it on sacred art and the second on science and how the physical world relates to the unseen. So I think you guys would dig this conversation. It's really beautiful to see a you know individual like him in his you know twenties just really being so brilliant and such a seeker and and then um you know on his journey and mastering that gamelan bum bum bing bang bum 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 bing bum 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 that gamelan is crazy uh man i love bali and the art and the culture there is really alive and well in a beautiful way but uh yeah so i'll just let you guys listen Before I do, I want to say thank you for supporting the podcast. It's really dope to see it grow consistently. Um, Whatever you can do to help spread the word, keep it spreading to people, please do that. If there's anybody who will connect with it, let them know about it. Send it to them. Send them a link. Um, If you want to support the podcast, that'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, We have a Patreon page. And uh, that allows us to do this sustainably. I would like to devote more time and energy to it, um, but I haven't been able to do one in over a month just because I've been traveling and working and performing and doing my uh, doing my art. And the podcast just necessarily has to kind of take a back seat to that because you know, got to get that paper, boo boo. But. Um, it's something that I would like to do more often and like to keep more consistently. And it's such a powerful medium. There's a few podcasts out there that I listen to of comedians and academics and, you know, um, other thinkers, entertainers, I mean, athletes. It's just a really free medium and I really enjoy it. So if you think that there's benefit in this or you connect with it and you have $5 or $10 a month to to put up on it, um, then that's greatly appreciated. And if you don't have an extra 5 or 10 then it's all good. Just listen and enjoy. All right, y'all. Peace. One love. You were saying that you got into art history, mm-hmm. particularly looking at Buddhism, just ancient art in, in Egypt, Egyptian. Yeah, I, 
and really trying to look at that's interesting because like for me when I was like a teenager I, I started like really seeking like mm. and same as you like I'm looking in ancient cultures and ancient wisdom traditions but for me I was less drawn to the visual art and more to like the written the written yeah so what drew you to the visual um when I was learning about a lot of written art or a lot of written, not written art, but a lot of written documents and everything, the majority of them I felt were tainted in a way that was diff- that was not there with art. Mm-hmm. Like a mu- you know, a lot of. <clears throat> I'm not going to say that that art wasn't commissioned by kings and, and standardized. Um, like even here, you know, the Balinese sculptures look more and more similar. I think over time now, like there aren't people that really do, especially with the stone ones. There aren't people that really do really different sculptures. Um, and it's the same, you know, you can see that definitely in throughout art, but, but the cool thing about art is that someone, because at the time, you know, 1% of the population could read or write in particular. Mm-hmm. So it's a very particular set of people were writing those books. Um, and that's the reason I like art history is because it, mm-hmm. it, it opens up to the lower, the gen, you know, the laity, the people right. that don't have that, that can't read and write can still write their own history which I think is why I was interested in it. I That's like deep. Yeah, so like, yeah, it's the elites that are not only writing the books, but they're re- written for the elites. They're yeah. written for these like elite circles or a priestly, priestly class. Pretty much, yeah. Either, and, yeah. yeah. I'd say either that or they're written for history to write their own, but, you know, in particular to write the history that they wanted, right. the narrative they wanted. You know? Yeah, because history is always told by the victors. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's interesting and like, you know, I, I always uh, am amazed by this idea that the arts, you know, one of my teachers said art is the means by which the deepest truths of a religion are expressed and experienced by the masses. Exactly. Yeah. Basically this idea, which is that very few people in any culture are going to be metaphysicians or philosophers or, you know, deal with the high-level texts of the sacred law and these mm-hmm. type of things. It's, it's this elite, essentially. However, through the poetry and the songs and then the visual arts, all the way from architecture to, like, any representation, all the way down to clothing even, because in traditional cultures, man, that's one of the yeah. things that we've lost is, like, Traditional culture, like what you wore meant something. I identified who your tribe was, who your people was, like whether you had like what feathers you had in your hair, identified like your spiritual rank or your role. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's deep. I mean, that's the thing that that is very much lost. But the point is, is that it's it's through the arts that Mm -hmm. the deepest truths. And that's the thing about the arts is that you know, think about like the highest level philosophers, metaphysicians, you know, like think about in the Sufi tradition, someone like Ibn Arabi, who's seen as like the greatest kind of mystical philosopher, but very few people have ever read him. And he's called a Sheikh al-Akbar, like the greatest master by the Sufis. But even like across most of the Sufi orders, the, the Sheikhs, the masters of different orders, they actually forbid their students to read his books until a certain point, like years of study. So it's like seen as like wow. you yeah. need like prerequisites. But but 
ironically, if you read the poetry of the great like mystics like Rumi and others, a lot of those metaphysical teachings are told through very simple stories, like even animal stories and things like that. So, and that was consumed on a wider level yes. by by people of all social strata. Yeah, that that <clears throat> one of the things that comes to mind when you say that is the um, all of the uh, bodhisattva stories, um, uh, specifically the Jataka tales in in early Buddhism. Um, because one of the things I was interested in looking at Buddhism as a religion is it's much more um, generally accepted that the Buddha was a human being, a man, you know, and it's much less accepted that someone like Jesus Christ was a man. And right. so that there's a lot more, um, you get, you, there's a lot more difficulties and barriers you have to jump across to, to be, to really study like the, the way I wanted. And mm. so Buddhism I picked because People knew it from the beginning that he was a special person, but he was much more like a Sufi mystic or something. Right. A very, very important spiritual teacher, incredibly intelligent, you know, in terms of the ways of the ways of yeah, spiritual guidance. Right. But not divine. But not divine. And he quickly became divine. And that's right. the reason I was and I, that's the reason I wanted to look at this art history from this period. Because there's some really interesting stuff that comes out of it and I think it has to do with the spread of the religion, the way that people is, even if, yeah, if, if a whole country becomes Buddhist, the people that are in power, if they're Buddhist, they're the ones that we read the text from, for example. But, but that doesn't mean that the country, yeah, even if one, the, just the kings were Buddhist, it wouldn't mean that the country itself would be, you know, that you right. need the, the lady to right. be involved. So the, the, so it's interesting to see what, changed in what they really were drawn to in the art. Mm. Um, for example, the Jataka tales are Buddha's previous lives mm. um, because they needed stories uh, from earlier times to uh, like prove that the Buddha was a very mystical person, like to show why he was so important. Mm. Um, and the, one of the magical abilities the Buddha was supposedly uh, received when he attained enlightenment was he could see your karmic past. So he could look at any person and tell you why you are, you, who you are now mm. through your past lives. Mm. And so he did it to himself as well. So he has all of these stories that come about. But I'm sure a majority of them initially were more or less made by the laity mm. and that were ways that... that um, you know, it's very, very much like the Sufi stories, or mm-hmm. like the I, I can think of stories that Jesus said mm-hmm. the same way, where he he made it simple and he used an actual storytelling right. element, kind of like allegories or teaching stories, which yeah. illustrate some important point to the followers, such that they can understand perhaps a very complex or deep aspect of how to like live a life, you know, according to the path that will. Yeah allow one to progress spiritually. An, an extra step for the, the Buddhist uh, Jataka tales is that they're all also really showing off how amazing the Buddha is. Because right. almost all of, you know, all of them, he dies at the end. Right. And he probably dies in some fairly gruesome way. Wow. Um, like one of, the, one of the ones that they really enjoyed for some reason um, was uh, the Jataka tale um, when he's born as a prince, because usually he is. That's another interesting thing. Okay. That like karmically... 
He was a prince too. Right. So karmically, they still believe princes were more pure. Like kings were more divine. So they still had that divine kingship kind of thing going on. Right. Um, but so he was born as this prince and uh, a swallow flies into his, into his lap um, as it's being chased by a bird, by a, a larger bird, like a, a bird of prey. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the story, they tell you that the two birds are Indra and Brahma, the, the gods, of, the Indic gods, and that they're trying to um, test the Buddha and for his, um, you know, to show his compassion, basically. So the, the swallow comes in and, and asks for protection from the Buddha. But the but the the larger bird says no, like like this is my kill, like you're taking you're going against nature, and he's mm-hmm. so the 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 Buddha um, as a prince says, okay, I will give you um, equal weight in flat and my own flesh um, for the swallow's life, and so he agrees, and they put him, and then there's this large golden you know like scale that's brought out, and he's still and. Then his attendants slowly cut off meat from his leg as they as they put it onto the top, but as as much as they keep adding on, the the, the weight is never balanced from this. Even though the swallow is a little bird, mm. so eventually he sits on the scale and then it balances. When so when he completely sacrifices his life, wow! And then they turn into gods and say, "Oh wow, you're such an amazing you know person." And then he dies, and that's <laughs> how a lot of the stories are. Like right. A prince walking walking along a bridge, and he looks down and sees a mother lioness dead on the ground, and two of his starving cubs, and he jumps off to feed them. You know, mm. like things like that, like like really showing his like compassion for all life. Right, is what he's this like, level of he's way, complete self sacrifice. Yeah, and and see the interesting thing about that to me is the two biggest elements that I notice is they're always princes. They're often princes, which is putting to me. I, I think I see that as oh the princes are again putting themselves in this narrative like oh we're really important like mm. see how you know see how he how special the princes are as well mm-hmm. um, and also this uh, the compassion um, that he or the the uh, things that he does that the Buddha has done shows that he is really every one of these tales and as they become more important show that he's becoming less and less of a man. Because these things can't be done by normal, you know. It would take right. it would take thousands of lives to even match a, a pers- like a drop in the well for for Buddha's like right. amazing deeds, which is why he's like he becomes slowly more and more a god, and the the people want it. The people like, and, and it probably has a lot to do with where the the religion spreads to, which is through a lot of um, Central Asia, and then up into China, and all of Central Asia was very. Yeah, um, you know, Mithraic, like early, like they had, in, you know, Iranian gods, a lot of Iranian gods, right. um, and I'm sure you've heard, you've, you know, some of them from the because they're from the same region. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, uh, Mitra is mm-hmm. the sun god, and Mao, the moon god, are mm-hmm. really big gods there, and so they they had right. already Zoroastrians, Ahura Mazda. Yes, like yeah. So they already had a lot of worship, um, especially like cultic worship. Um, and they had icons and all these things already there. So when the Buddhist, when Buddhism started spreading and people started turning to that religion, you know that they have to choose. Right? That's something that I always thought about. Is you know individually, it's a hard decision to change your religion. Sure. And so to, for any religion to spread, it's a very, it's a very intense process. Actually, we think we kind of gloss over it really quickly because it happened so long ago. Yeah. But it takes many people like oh something really had to have changed their mind and. 
one of the things that I was studying was, I think, was the, the, necess- the need for miracle in a lot of these early stories. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you needed some spectacle. Someone needed to really see, oh, wow, this is, you know, this, this God's way more powerful than this God because he can do this magic, basically. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I think the Buddha becomes more and more godlike because he has to compete. More and more kind of magical where he's doing all type of miracles. Like, for example, in that Central Asian region, which they now call Gandhara, that was one of the, like, the, the, um, the cult, the states, I guess, in early, you know, the early first century BC kind of time Mm -hmm. around. That's really this, the really interesting time. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff happens right around then. Um, and, uh, yeah, the... There's a lot of Buddhas called the that, which is this is a really specific statue, like because the the statues are showing these stories um, from the Buddha's life, and this one is really seems to be it's interesting because there's a lot of the statues found in this one area, but they're not very common other anywhere else, and it's this uh, miracle Shravasti Buddha, which is the Buddha that does performs mir- literal miracles um, in front of uh, like an audience of thousands of ascetic monks and converts them all into Buddhism at the end, mm-hmm. um, involving you know m- a lot of different things. But the biggest thing, the, the reason it's also called the twin miracle, because the biggest thing he does is he f- floats in midair and starts um, basically um, from every pore in his body, either water or fire comes out, so light, really. But mm-hmm. So he was like glowing and water was spewing out, so it was like, mm-hmm. the idea of, fire and water mixing, showing that he's, you know, incredibly powerful. Um, and, yeah, this other... At the beginning of the story, it's pretty funny, too. He says um, he forbids all of his uh, arhats, which arhats are, are people who've reached enlightenment through the way of, of monastery life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he told them to not perform miracles because it's not, like, good to do so. Right. Um, but then the aesthetic... Because the aesthetics were were performing miracles to get people to, to like join their religion basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the Buddha forbids the Arhats to doing it. And then one of the, the like lead aesthetic and ascetic in this one town, um, you know, village area in North India, um, says, which it's in Chavasti actually is the area. Um, and he says, Oh, I, uh, you know, like, Oh, is that, they were basically just like, Oh, the Buddha can't do it kind of a thing. Right. And he said, well, I didn't say me. I just said them. That's <laughs> basically what he said. And so then he like start just immediately does all these crazy things. Like he says, "I'll come back and, and under a mango tree, I will perform all of these these miracles." Mm-hmm. And so the aesthetics then cut down every mango tree within like a hundred kilometers or something. Mm-hmm. The whole city they cut mm-hmm. down every mango tree nearby, so he can't do it. So he then flies there. Actually, literally flies to Sravasti, and when he lands, he. Uh, the king comes and offers him a mango as, as food. Um, he's the Buddha only eats when someone offers him some food. Mm. Uh, and he eats the mango and then drops the seed on the ground and a full-grown tree sprouts out of it. And then he performs his miracle under this tree that he just spawned. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, just, all, like I said, it's this very powerful miracle, and it's very interesting that that's really important there. So in, in this region, it's in right Central in, Asia, it's like the, the statues today. depict that specific story yeah like there are other statues of course but that that area is also the like genesis for the buddha image that we think of yeah that's what i wanted to get into because i know i mean i've heard 
And this is one of the things that is actually surprising or was surprising to me and I think to most people because when most people think of Buddhism, they associate it with, you know, the statues of the Buddha Mm -hmm. and the various poses, but definitely like the kind of peaceful, often like eyes closed, meditative Mm -hmm. statues. It's almost as like central to the the concept of Buddhism as like the crosses to Christianity. Yes. But then... You know, I heard somewhere along the line that actually there were no statues yeah. of the Buddha for hundreds of years yes, after yeah. his death. So how did that come about? What was it? So in India itself, um, the early Theravada, like Buddhism is what we call that, that, that sect now, which is the one that you can only become enlightened through, through, medit- or through uh, monast- monastic life, meditation and, you know, um, fairly ascetic kind of lifestyle, like, you know you know, removing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the other big sect nowadays is Mahayana, mm-hmm. which is like, you can, it's much more savior religion. There's lots of bodhisattvas, which are these like people that have reached enlightenment, but then pledged their life to like the remaining souls on earth to, sa- right. to save them. And it's very, it's very savior. It's very yeah. The concept of a bodhisattva is one of my like favorites in just human the history of human thought, if you want to think of it oh, like yeah, that, because yeah. it's really beautiful mm-hmm. as far as this idea of, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that, that someone who basically ascends to, awakens to the ultimate reality and yeah. is basically on that lip of the final realization, mm-hmm. complete uh, you know, liberation from the wheel of reincarnation and just yes. like annihilation in the absolute truth that is at the core of everyone's being but makes a decision instead of like jumping into that shoreless sea to come back Mm -hmm. and to commit and pledge to keep entering and to keep dying and being reborn and keep dying and being reborn until all souls are liberated yes yeah that's correct and i mean it's 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 it's, it's a, intense. It's, ultimate, it's even more ultimate of a sacrifice in a way than re, than extinguishing through reincar through uh, enlightenment. Right. <clears throat> because you're knowingly in the Buddhist mindset. Like, have you seen that that really cool? There's this allegoric picture in China called like the the vinegar tasters. It's like a pretty. Mm-mm. It's like a pretty. It's a Taoist uh, manuscript in particular, but it's a very uh, poignant story, uh, thing, and it shows three men tasting. Um, with their hand, you know, tasting just with their fingers, uh, some of like this vat of vinegar and they all have different expressions on their faces mm-hmm. and this face is, and the three men are supposed to represent the, the teachers of the three largest religions and or three largest philosophical like ideals in China. Taoism, which was Confucianism, Dao- Buddhism. Yes. And so the, the Confucius, uh, the Confucius, uh, has a, he, he looks angry basically. So he, he doesn't like like he's very unhappy with the with the vinegar, right? Because the, bitter, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the China, the the Buddha thinks it has a bitter fa- taste or bitter face because he thinks that the you know the Buddhist mindset is that w- the vinegar represents life and that yeah. life is is bitter, like life is is full of suffering and full of pain, and that it's better to remove yourself completely from it. Right. Like it's better to not taste the vinegar because right. that's. Because that's the best. Because that's the only way to keep the bitter taste away. Because right. um, life is suffering. Yeah. Yeah, and so the what Confucius. About the Taoist, is, oh, he's smiling. <laughs> yeah. he's, that's the way that vinegar is supposed to taste. Mm. 
and so he accepts it as as kind of as part of life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, but so the, but yeah, back, getting back to the iconism for for Buddhism. Yeah, so in in India they didn't have any icons of the Buddha. They specifically chose not to use a, an image of him um, because they it was very poignant and very frontal in their in that in the early religion that he was gone. Like he was not in samsara. He was not reincarnating. He couldn't help you because he was gone completely. In and other so, words, like the, he so, taught the method. He taught the path. Yes. But he's not to be worshipped. He's not even to be like petitioned, you could say. Mm-hmm. Was, but you, you are to implement the path, and it will lead to what he realized. Yes. And so what I found, and one of the things I do think is interesting, is a majority of these larger religions that exist now started with a very mystic tradition. All of them. Like, yeah. Incredibly. And... And one individual having an experience of selflessness and awakening to this like higher consciousness, unity of being, oneness, that all is interconnected and that there is a supreme source of existence. Every religion starts with that. Yeah. And the, it's interesting how quickly it switch, changes into this much more structured, much more like, is one of the biggest things that I don't, that I like, that I find not that I don't resonate with religion, with at least a lot of the like standardized religions, is that it it removes it, is that it prevents people from being spiritual because I feel like those are like separate, separate things. So like a religion, because most people, most religions, only certain people are allowed to be spiritual, are allowed to be connected to God in, in that way, right? Like yeah. like in Catholicism, the Pope is literally the closest person on earth to God, right? And so he is the most spiritual person on earth. Right, that, so religion, yeah, because let's. It's important, actually. This is one of the things that I feel is super important. It, you know, is a lot of times when people are having conversations, they actually don't define the terms, and so like yeah. how one person uses, especially when it gets to like religion or spiritual, like mm-hmm. it's really about like how are we defining these terms? Because we may be saying the same thing, or maybe very different things, and thinking we're saying the same thing. You yeah, know yeah. So you're saying like and like a Spiritualism, I think, is like an inherent trait in humans. Like, I mean, mm. and some people are more in, more in touch than others. Like, like in shamanic kind of religions, like yeah. there are certain people who are just naturally more in touch, in with, touch the with unseen. Yeah. yeah, and and but I think it's 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 you know part of this you know the confusing and like under un, non understood part for the most part for mo- for most people it's the part that we really don't understand our soul whatever you'd say there and I think spiritual but but most organized religions tell you, you know, prescribe all of this to you. There's certain things, right? Like you have a certain soul. There's certain, and like the moral codes, not saying that they're bad, but there's a certain moral code, mm-hmm. certain structure and hierarchy. And, and yeah, like I feel like it, it really removes, like not everyone can just be like highly spiritual. And you can, but it doesn't, it's not always, it's not really encouraged. Like, it's not encouraged to study the books as much, like, as it is, like, right. you know, to just go to church or, like, you know, it's, it's. I know, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, and I think also it's important to mention that, like, each religion is very different. And they, I think us as Westerners, we tend to see it that way because of, like, the way that Europe developed with Christianity, with what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. Like, there was an extreme, you know, hierarchy. Yeah. Of individuals that claim to speak on behalf of God, mm. you know what I mean, and, and divine kingship, and right, and yeah. stuff like that. It's in China too, and yeah. but you do see it play out in different places. Like one of my friends, who's a, 
American Buddhist convert to Buddhism, he mentioned, he's like, yeah, like when you go to China or you go to the, Asia, let's say like Asian traditionally Buddhist lands, you know, you have really like a dichotomy between the, the monks who are like actually devoted, at least theoretically, yeah. to the practice, to the invocation, to the meditation, to the devotional aspect. And then you have the masses who their religion has been reduced for the most part to their practices that they go to the monks for prayers when they have babies or when they get married or yeah. when their funerals, like it's kind of like it's magical. Yeah. It's not really about, Oh, I should transform my, my own individual life and my own yeah. individual consciousness to, you see what I'm saying? No, I totally agree. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the same thing in boot in the Buddhism in like China, for example, is pure land Buddhism, which is the most savior like form of Buddhism and that, mm. that there is. Um, it's, there's there's millions of Buddhas. They all have different powers and aspects. You can pray to any of any one of them for specific boons. Um, for example, Amitabha Buddha is like the main Buddha of the Pure Land, which is like this. It's like instead of going to re, instead of reincarnating, you so you reach enlightenment and you're taken to this place instead called the Pure Land, which is like basically heaven. Like, you know, everyone's there just, just like in pure bliss and everything's wonderful. And at any point in time, you can choose to be, to just to be extinguished and go to reincarnate or be mm. enlightened. But it's like a stop between them. Interesting. So like, but like who would choose like to, to leave is the kind of idea. Like, because if you're truly a Buddhist, you would either, or if you're not truly a Buddhist, but if you're truly like Theravada Buddhist, like early style, you would want to just go to, you wouldn't want to stop in this place. This is right. out of the way of the main goal. Right? That's, so, so, that's interesting because uh, Imam Ghazali, who's, he was one of the greatest like <clears throat> scholars of Islam outwardly. And he taught at the Nidhami in Baghdad, which was like the Harvard or Oxford of the day at his mm-hmm. time. He died 11-11 common era. Okay, so yeah. like literally it was like the top university on earth at that time. And, but he had this like real crisis of faith where he was like, I'm teaching all this, but I'm not sure if it's true. Mm. And so he like disappeared, like he left his post and he basically became like a wandering dervish for 10 years. And then he came to his experience of what truth is and what reality is. And then he like came back or while he was, Gone, he wrote this book called the Ihya Ulumadin, which is basically trying to infuse what he says is really the true essence of Islam, which is like basically Sufism into all aspects of Islam. Like, so he kind of was like, bring, like, what is the purpose of prayer and the purpose of fasting and the purpose of all these outward acts are to transform your heart and this and that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, one thing that he did, he said that you just triggered in my mind when you said that, he is he goes, the paradise or the heaven of the common folks, uh, the common people is like, you know, this, what's described as like, you know, gardens and rivers and happiness and whatever you want, you want. He goes, but paradise for the elect. And by that mean, he meant like the Sufis, those who truly walk the path of overcoming their lower self and awakening is that they will gaze without a veil upon the ultimate reality. And they will do so more fully in each moment, like 
from the next one moment to the next, it becomes more full. And this will never end because this reality can never be encompassed fully. So basically it's like this perpetual, like bliss. ecstatic yeah. bliss yeah. of like discovering deeper and deeper. It sounds it's, nice. Yeah. But basically, so it's exactly what you're saying. It's yeah. like, there's okay. There's this like heaven where you get like whatever you want. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, whatever you know, like you want to like slide down a slide of chocolate into like a chocolate pool and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like, I think, I mean, I think the main reason for one heaven though is because of family. Because they don't want to lose those. Because it's a, it's again, it's like the Buddhist, and that's so against the Buddhist ideal. Like at least the early one It's like because like it's it's like allowing yourself to retain attachments until forever for the rest of your you know for eternity. I guess you know in this pure land, you can stay with all of your family, all of your friends in the pure land. Mm-hmm. So I mean, and so that is really like going completely against the attachment kind of style. Right. But it makes sense why it's in China because of the strong. Like fam- familial like bond and ancestors and exactly like they wouldn't be okay with them just disappearing. Mm. But the the but so we're talking about like the the early like aniconic tradition with the Buddha, and I think that's interesting too because I know like I know Islam is very against mm. iconism as Usually, well. Usually, yeah, yeah, like for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, I've seen some like middle like what I would say is like the middle Islamic period pictures of like. Of Muhammad, but he still doesn't have a face. No, like it's usually like body. veiled yeah. or like light or exactly. like like yeah. a flame, like a flame of light. Yeah, yeah. where his face is. Yeah, um, but still, they get close. They are a lot closer than they started with. Because again, it's like they start with very this very strict, like no, right? You know, don't. But do the, this. And, the, and the interesting thing to point out is like it stays pretty strict in like what because basically the historians say that there were two kind of like spheres of Islam. Mm-hmm. There was like the Arabic sphere, which is like, okay, Arabia, but then all the way West too, North Africa and then Spain yeah, and definitely. Sicily and then yeah. down into Africa as well, into Sub-Saharan Africa. This is all basically Arabic is the lingua franca. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But then the vast majority, not the vast majority, but a, a larger geographic area as well as population was in what they call the Persianate sphere. Which is where Persian was actually the, and that's from the, you know, the Balkans to Bengal, right? Mm-hmm. That includes what's modern day Turkey, Central yeah, Asia, yeah. Iran, Turkmenistan, all those, you know, Afghanistan, you know, modern day yeah. India, Pakistan, all that was, you know, the lingua franca was Persian. And even like when Islam enters China, the first texts that are translated are from Persian, not Arabic. So in the Persian sphere, they were much more lax about. Visual yeah, representation. Yeah, makes sense. It's the same exactly. reason why the Buddha. It's the same thing when the Buddha went into the Persian sphere, out of in, out of India. Mm-hmm. The same thing happens because like they started needing this. The image becomes necessary because of this like early cultural right. need for sure. Um, which is very yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Deep, yeah, it's the same thing. Like when you you see these images like in Sanji, which is in a, a Buddhist monastery in in like central India. And like they, they will purposely, you know, they'll do the thing like the footprint, where they'll like there'll be an image on one of the. There's like some all around these the stupas, which is the the Buddhist, you know, uh, basically like burial chambers for Buddhist for like relics of the Buddha. Um, there are these, yeah. The they put all these like relief carvings around it, and uh, 
it's different stories that we that we know now are stories that like a majority of these stories the Buddha is now in them. Like you know, you see them later, and it's the same story. It's like the deer sermon when he first gives his when he gives his first sermon to to uh, you know the first the first group of disciples, and there it's like on this hill, and there are deer there, and so there's always an, in the, there's always a deer in the picture while he's giving the sermon. But all of these images in Sanchi, like it'll be like instead of him where he normally is placed in the iconic tradition, it'll be like a bodhi tree, the tree that he attained enlightenment under the. the, the um, in pair. other words, he's not in the picture, but a tree is representing him. Yeah, because they know from this from the sutras and the story that he attained enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. Beautiful. Um, so, and, or like the the closest thing they get is like an empty throne. Like, and that one's interesting because it's like wow, it shows his his, his kingliness, his royalty, even though he's not. He's like it's the spiritual king, spiritual authority. Yeah. Um. So that begs the question because they're making images. And they're representing the Buddha, but they're choosing to not represent him as a human being, but mm-hmm. to represent him symbolically. Yeah. So is there like a concept like of it's wrong to represent him or it's a prohibition in the early period? Or is it just like, I don't know. Like, I don't think there was necessarily a prohibition. I mean, there was like, he did speak a little bit about things like, for example, the stupas. The stupas have been in, in existence in, for Buddhism since the beginning of the religion. And that is really interesting because, it, it, like I said, it's they house relics of the Buddha. So they house like, like parts, supposedly parts of his, of his uh, cremated corpse, actually. So like, you know, his, his teeth or his bones, his skull, whatever. Um, because these have magical properties, but he expressly he explicitly said in the in the sutras that that's for the laity. That's not for the for the monks. Like the monks should not have any interest in the, in the stupas, and the stupas are there for the people who cannot like move to a mon- like be- join the monastic life, mm. which is interesting. So he already had this kind of plan since earlier on. Is they asked how it, how they should uh, like honor him basically, and he was like he had his alms bowl and he turned it upside down. He, he put the cloth like cloth like this, folded it in, into quarters, and put the alms bowl upside down and said, this basically is what I want you to build for mm. these stupas. Mm. Um, but again, he it's interesting that, you know, he, he specifically said, yeah, like don't, you know, the monks shouldn't be not really, yeah, they shouldn't pay attention. Mm. It's not for them. So basically the first few centuries of Buddhism, there are no kind of like statues, physical representations, or at least very few. Until and then, the turn of the, cent- the common era. Until the turn of the common era. So then it kind of explodes. And once it explodes, I know, and this is something that Absolutely. I'm really interested in, is, is the symbolic nature of, you know, these pieces of art. And even down, and this is one of the things that I spoke to you previously about, is like, even down to the hand positions, yes, the mudras. The mudra, yeah, I studied the mudras. And too. this is something which is so beautiful because once I once I learned that, then when I look at these statues, I see that there's a profound like transmission, a profound teaching just in the mm-hmm. where he has his hands. So maybe if you could explain like what some of those are and what they represent. So actually, the yeah, one of the the last thesis paper I wrote of these, like the the professor that I was studying this with. Um, was was on, yeah, basically breaking down the iconic images of the Buddha from the early centuries. And one of the things was looking at the mudras. 
Um, and as the de- the religion develops more up here, like you know, it starts out with maybe three, you know, three or four hand uh, gestures that were commonly used, but it quickly develops into now I think there's twelve or something. Mm-hmm. So it could be or more really. Like when I was in Singapore, I went in the Pure Land Buddhist monastery there. It's massive, and I've got some good pictures actually because they have a Buddhist history museum, art history museum there, mm-hmm. and had some stuff that I actually was wrote back some of my papers on. I was very excited <laughs> to see it in person. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, they, and the walls were just covered in Buddhas in this, in, in here, just absolutely, you know, from floor to ceiling and two, like uh, two stories of, of these little statues, like about, you know, maybe a foot a tall or something. Um, and they all had different hand signals were holding different objects you know, it's just every single one of them was unique, and so I'm sure there's yeah hundreds now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the biggest uh, two or three are like the um, the uh, Abaya Mudra was the main one I looked at, which was this open palm. So the open palm with the hand like facing forward. Yes, forward. So facing. if you're st- looking at the Buddha, his palm is is. To you, yes, with his fingers kind of spread, yeah, spread, it's, yeah. yeah, and it's it's a fairly loose hand, mm-hmm. but so it, it's about the um, it has a few different meanings, and that's actually the one I really was interested in because mm-hmm. it's the oldest image, and I mm-hmm. other than the meditative stance when he's when he's sitting cross legged and his hands are open, so there. when the hands are like down in the lap facing yeah. up towards the sky. Both yeah. hands yes. together. And I'm forgetting the name. Um, right. But of, that of represents the, meditation. Yes, that's his that's his deep meditation. There's another one which is in enli- his enlightenment mudra, which mm. is he's in the same similar position except one of his hands is touching the ground. Wow. And so that is from the sutra, he says as he reaches it when he re- attains enlightenment, he touches the ground and points to, to earth and says, Mother Earth, like or you know, like um, bear witness to this event. Basically. Wow. So like that's so this one is like him. So which is deep because it's like he's attaining the highest levels of realization, but like staying grounded essentially. Yes. Like yeah. And then there's one where the the it's like almost it's this like the A O K where we would go A O K, but then yeah. they're like curved, so they're facing each other. And that's yeah. teaching, right? That's the teaching mudra. Yeah. yeah. So that's the mudra when he is um, giving sermon. That's that's right. the idea of that one. Um, and so those are like the main ones. You can see those like all throughout India and in Central Asia. Um, but the, the Abhaya Mudra was the one I was the most interested in because it's the most frontal. It's the one that's like, like the teaching Mudra is also really like poignant. Like there's the, those statues comparatively to the, the very kind of passive meditative statue where his eyes are half closed or completely closed. He's obviously not really paying attention to you, right? Like those statues are, are more to show his, again, to show his constant meditative practice. But the mudra, when his hands are open, are very frontal. It's very interactive with the, with the viewer. So it's much more of like a cultic object to me. It's like something that they worshipped, mm-hmm. that they would, they would use the one with, their hand, with his hand open to worship versus the one where he's meditating, um, if they can, especially in the larger like monasteries. Um, and the the other and that that hand signal that hand symbol is really old actually it's way before the Buddha um, is what I found it's it's 
it was it's been used since early since really early times to represent um like as like a greeting like mm-hmm. a hail and um it's like hi you yeah and in particular it shows you have no you have no dagger you're not, you have not armed mm-hmm. like you're like being so like, it's like I come open. in peace yeah and that was uh, some of the original that's that's what most people think but there really isn't any evidence for that and one of the things that i found that i was very interested in was i went to a committed persia and i saw the the old, the oldest inscription that's dated for the Achaemenid period, like truly dated from the Achaemenid period, which is the Byzantine inscription with Darius the Great, um, and he's doing the mudra. If you look, he he um, the so the the image is also very important because it's how we transited cuneiform because it, it's written in many languages mm-hmm. under under this this image, and basically it's showing he's giving. He puts this inscription on the side of this cliff to mark the great, the like spectacular accomplishment he's had, which is like uniting this massive area, you know, at the time the largest empire ever. And so, you know, that so he's like, you know, bear witness to this event. Um, and the image is, is very Persian in style, but not as Achaemenid as a lot of the later stuff. It's not as, uh, well, so basically, the before Darius the Great, there was a, a bit of a civil war in Persia, and so some people say the Achaemenid Empire starts with Darius, and some people say it starts with um, oh, I can't remember, I forget his name, um, but he was a king before. Yeah, the well, the king, two kings before. There was the he, a lot of people think he's the first king because in the palace, the like Achaemenid palace is his. Um, but Darius is the one that really made the large, the, the empire. And between between the first king, there was a civil war, and one guy takes control. So the, in this image, it shows Darius standing on top of this guy, you know, which is a very common thing, is him like with his foot planted on him at, on mm-hmm. the ground, so showing Conqueror. his yeah, full conquering him. So that's him, you know, taking control, taking order back into the in the Persian Empire itself. And then he's holding a bow, and he has his army behind him. And then ahead of him, there are uh, people chained around their necks um, in, lo- in a line. And each of these people represent the different regions that he gains control of because they, di- they all look different. And the last one was the Scythians, which were these like hunter-gatherer, no- they're more like nomads, so the, these like, nomadic tribe that he took control of, which was in like the central, now in like Turkmenistan, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, um, they also moved all the way up to like the north, north of the Baltic mm-hmm. area. Um, so they, and they're, they, they're known, they're really specific because they have pointy hats. Like they really have like elf, like level, like really tall pointed hats. Mm-hmm. And so you see this guy with his beard and a pointed hat in the back. So we know it, that's like a skip thing. We can, we can tell based on their sure. tribal clothing, who, who each one of these people are, as we were talking about before. But what he's doing is he's talking about how he's, you know, subdued these people and made them their, his vassals and how he's, you know, how he's conquered this land and and made stability basically, and it does have the you know Faravahar um, Zoroastrian symbol above him, mm. but his hand is facing this way. His hand it, it's all side profile view, but his hand is facing towards the the um, viewer. The no, actually, it's facing towards the men mm. that he's captured. Um, and comparatively, like there are later images all around the like, like Darius's um, um, his like uh, his crypt, his uh, 
whatever you I can't I can't again I can't, tomb, I can't, I can't. yeah his tomb and the tombs of other Achaemenid his like grandson and all these the tombs of the other Achaemenids nearby. Um, they always there's a very common motif on top of it of them standing there and doing and doing a symbol like hands gesture towards Faravahar again, except nor, all of those symbols his hand is like this his hand, so his hand Spread. would be yeah and it also would be to you it would be more facing like par, yeah, profile mm-hmm. um, because it's all yeah it's all side view carved mm-hmm. but it's it's more like this and. Mm-hmm. If from from the viewers, if you were the viewer, it would be a it would be a profile view, mm-hmm. um, and but the only one that's that's like this way that's for, towards the other people in the in the picture is that Darius one. So I I argued that this is not a lot of people say this is he's again hailing Faravahar, you know, as saying because think all it's all thanks to my Zoroastrian God that I am king and that I've mm-hmm. ruled, you know, very divine rule, kingship kind of thing. But the way his hand symbol is pointing at it, it looks more like he's showing it to the the conquered man is like, hey, you know, I'm not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I've, it, it, to me, really what it is, is it's like this, his like powerful, righteous magnanimity. You know, it's like sure. he's so powerful that he can spare their lives. Mm-hmm. And so this image, this symbol to me, again, g- gave me this really strong kingship control vibe. So like one of the things I noticed is a lot of the ways the Buddha is framed is as a king. Other than he's not dressed as a king, everything else points towards this kingship. Like you can, you can get a lot of a lot of almost every Im- part, every small part of the of this of the of the image is at the time would be associated with their king, with a r- local ruler, or uh, with the larger like motif of kings. Mm-hmm. So I think I find that interesting because that's again, it's like when the image forms, it's very central with the with the government in the area who chooses Buddhism as a way to kind of, it's like a social glue, right? So instead of it being very local religions controlling, um, you know, like tribal areas, Buddhism is something that can spread across borders because it's not as tied to local religion. Like, you know, a good example is Hindu Bali or Hinduism in general. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't spread outside of where it's formed. Indeed. Yeah. Except for here. Well, it was here. There was an Indian, there was like an Indian empire for right. a long time, like a Hindu empire, and that's the only reason it's still here. But again, it's not like there aren't. They don't have like a monastic style life or any kind of like, um, you know, they don't. There aren't missionaries, people trying to convert Mm-mm. anyone. They don't care about that. So no. In fact, you have to be born into a caste. If you're not born into a caste, you're like, yeah. You can't convert to Hinduism traditionally. Like yeah, you. pretty much. Yeah, I mean. In, but the, it's a really interesting, yeah, that, that's really interesting because they used, you know, Buddhism would be used in a region like Christianity is, the same thing. It's like these religions can work anywhere because they right. can form, they're very amorphous, amorphous. They can change to fit an area, you know, they can absorb cultural traditions right. and things and, and still very easily fit like Pure Land Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism. And so the, the another thing that's that we know is when these images were forming, it was also when Mahayana Buddhism was forming, which is a much more savior-based religion. And the biggest thing is right near all of these Buddha images in, in Central Asia and Gandhara, which is like, a, which, as you said, it, it just exploded. Like there's just, we really can't date a lot of these images because they've been out in the weather for hundreds and hundreds of years. But 
But we know they're so they're all they just all are about from the same period. Just you know, we can only date them to plus or minus a hundred years, which isn't you know. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of lumped together, and it's just crazy at what you what you find. It's just massive statues and hundreds of them everywhere. And and not only are there Buddhas, there are these princely figures. So this is bef- my professor and I also agree that these are bodhisattvas. That, and not only are they bodhisattvas, they're dressed like local rulers. So they're they're specifically like images of the kings and the princes nearby mm-hmm. um, showing that yet yeah, that they already have attained enlightenment mm-hmm. and everything. And maybe they have, but, but most likely, again, like, you know, I guess it's, as a king, you have a lot of free time, so you could certainly do mm-hmm. it. But, as, but at the same time, they also could just frame themselves as enlightened beings to again show to, you know, align their power sure. with, with Buddhism. A really interesting example is Messinac in Gandhara, which Messinac means little copper well. And um, it has presently, which is the reason that it's been completely destroyed, is that it's, um, which is a recent thing too. It's like people have discovered it and it was completely untouched. And then now it's gone like almost entirely because it, it's on the largest copper um, reserve in the entire planet. Wow. And so even in antiquity, they knew that there's a bunch of copper there. And um, the Buddhist monastery there was made, making all the coins for the kingdom, mm. which is very interesting. These Buddhists are specifically uh, forbidden, monks are specifically forbidden to handle money. Really? So it's interesting that they were given the task to build, to create money, to make the money. I mean, mm-hmm. a friend of mine said, well, that, that's because they wouldn't be tempted to use it. I'm like, I guess, but at the same time, it's a weird, Sure. yeah, it's a weird connection. Um, and that's, you know, again, showing that the local rulers were really giving the Buddhists a lot of power, giving, giving them a lot of, a lot of responsibility mm. in the way the government functioned, mm. um, which is, I think, showing that they were really allying with them for a while. But that's another reason it's so interesting, is the Gandharan kings don't really seem to worship Buddha. There's no, you can go to, there's a few, like, you know, like kind of royal kingship tombs in that area. Mm-hmm. None of them mention Buddha. They all mention Mitra. Hmm. They're much more because that's their local god that they're from that they like brought with them. That's one of these things that's just really interesting. Is we tend to think of like areas of the map which are, oh, this area is Christian, this area is Hindu, this area is you know Buddhist, but historically and even currently, things are so much more nuanced on the ground as far Definitely. as like how the a, a, you could say a foreign tradition comes into a land and the interplay with the indigenous traditions or beliefs, or even if you want to say indigenous traditions, because the, perhaps there's layer and layer and layer of different beliefs that have passed through or different mm-hmm. peoples that have conquered, or et cetera, et cetera. Sure, so it's yeah. always extremely complex. And we see that very much here in Nusantara, in Indonesia. I mean, it's like yeah. this really like, intense example of that. I mean, like in Java, you know, you have like intense, like syncretist, like animist Islam, which, you know what I mean? Oh, wow, is yeah. really interesting and yeah. unique. And like, it's like here with the Exactly. And then on Bali, you have a Hinduism, which is very also animist it's yeah. it's unique like Early. people that come from india they're like this isn't hinduism what's going they on meet, here? they 
they'll eat beef. They don't care. Like, right. they'll like, there's a lot of things that they do differently. But yeah, I also really like the religion here. Surprisingly, yeah. it's it's very interesting. So um, maybe you could speak about that. Like, what is it really aligns with a lot of what I like, what I have discovered through, you know, like, cause I also, my background's in science, it's in physics, mm-hmm. right? So I've, I have had a lot of, again, this, I think all of this stuff, you know, starting in, again, it's around the same time you started with this, is like trying to discover some kind of truth. And I think I'm, I've more or less starting to follow what I more, I think on your side too, is that I don't think that as much as I want, you know, I enjoy learning about history and everything, I don't think that that's going to tell me the truth isn't there. Mm. And the truth is more of a within thing, mm-hmm. something that you have to cultivate yourself. Um, and that it's not something that you can, no matter how hard you try, you can't, yeah, you can't get it from another person. Um, you can get a lot of help, but you can't get that truth from another person. And I think that's um, where I've been going. But mm. I really do like the Buddhist, uh, the sorry, the Bali Hindu religion, because it very much aligns with what I can understand with, with, with like God and spirituality. They do have an aspect of the divine as like a monotheism. Right. They believe um, in like that there's one God ultimately, right? Yes. And that all of the other gods are aspects of him, which, which really makes sense to me as well is that like, of course, like, and I actually really think that's very beautiful because they worship because they still have the, the multiple gods. It makes them pay more attention to more like subgroups of God. You know, it's like, like in the, the monotheistic God where he's everything, it makes you appreciate trees less. It makes you, you know, like I would feel like if there's a God that associated with like here, Boma, the God of the wild forest and incredibly important. He's that demon. That's like on everything. Mm -hmm. He protects all of the rituals and everything and everything, even though he's like, is a demon. Um, he, that's it's a perfect example of like them. So because of that, God is very important to them, and they think about it a lot. He is still they they have a respect for nature that's different because he, there's still a poignant God that's associated with it, right. right? And I feel like with our like this is like again maybe a Christian thing in particular, right. but like we're we're instead of thinking of the earth as as this yeah as a because we there's one God and. And these, the Bible pretty much says that God gave us earth mm-hmm. to do as we will with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that really changes in mind, the mindset on like environmentalism, mm-hmm. for example, because God gave the earth to us. We can't hurt the earth in the same way. But for them, the, the gods can get angry. For the, the Balinese, you can, really, you can make the earth angry. You can hurt the earth and the spirits can, can, can get mad. Right. And so they have a completely different mindset on... On like yeah, they have a respect that's different, and mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that you can't have that and cultivate of that course. as a, with a fully monotheistic religion. Sure, sure, of but I think that the average person doesn't. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, I think or I wonder how much of that is monotheism versus like a polytheism versus how much of that is that what we've received of Christianity comes through hundreds and hundreds of years of like a materialist, reductionist, scientific worldview, which, because, you know, I think like medieval Christians, for instance, I mean, who knows like what world they live in? That's so far away from, you know, because I think like 
the average Christian now, or just Westerner in general, whatever religion they are, like they live in a world that is desacralized. Yeah, yeah. And like, okay, maybe you go to church on Sunday, but other than that, you pretty much live in a world which God has been pushed farther and further and further away yeah. from the universe. You yeah, know what I yeah. mean? Until like, now he's not inside it at all. Exactly. Yeah. So what you're talking about is that kind of like pre-modern, like where the cosmos is infused with the sacred, that everything is a sign. And, and like, that's one of the beautiful things about being in Bali for me. And I've experienced this with other traditional cultures, other pre-modern societies all over the world from, you know, indigenous peoples in the Amazon that I spent time with to, you know, different tribal peoples in Africa, in the Middle East, you know, different traditions, but all of them are living in this like extremely sacred universe where everything is assigned. Everything is based on worship and time and everything is just infused. Right. And you see that here where it's like every aspect of life is related to the unseen. Yeah. You know what I mean? And every, there's just like constant like offerings. And then it seems like every other day is like a ceremony or some type of festival or holiday. And it's really like, you know, another way to look at it is like either the divine is transcendent, like far above anything we could say about it, think about it or believe about it. This like as far away as possible Mm -hmm. or, it's God is imminent. No, yeah, I think it's imminent, present yeah. in everything, right? Yeah, and that's more of a what I th- believe too. Right? Yeah, but also like this is the thing is that like each tradition has this, and like the Sufis will talk about specifically, is that you have to see with both eyes. Mm. Is that is that the ultimate is present with everything you know god is closer to you than your jugular vein what does that mean like it's yeah yeah. inside my jugular vein is inside of me so how can god be closer to me than inside of me yeah right the prophet muhammad made that statement so you know but at the same time god is greater than anything we think so it's this it's like this and it's not in the or it's in the and it's in the tension between holding both of those things you know what i mean an interesting thing that i've kind of been coming to as a because of through my the study in physics too mm-hmm. is that so in physics there's you know you get to this concept of wave particle duality meaning mm-hmm. um at very small and honestly at any point in time because that's basically we've gotten to the point where it, we know that this occurs always mm-hmm. is that everything is both a wave and a particle and a wave is 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 just a term we use and it needs to be really yeah explained more and it really is energy you know it's really like it's motion, it's vibration, it's things, you know, moving and, and, and existing, you know, like in, and not staying static. And, and I honestly think that that instead of like the world being constant can like, uh, you know, mainly made up of matter because that's the standard physics idea. I think everything's made of energy of vibrations mm-hmm. and that God is the cosmic energy mm-hmm. of the universe, you know, that, and that would allow, you know, that, that that would allow him both to be greater than our than anything we can imagine, because it exists, mm-hmm. because God is everything, and also as close as we can get, because it is us as well. Right. And that also means it gives an amazing feeling of connection 
And of like, and I've heard like Sufis, uh, mystics during deep meditation, can feel God in this mm. way that it's like this vibrating, pulsating field of energy mm. just extending mm. everywhere, be in, including inside into every place around them in every direction infinitely. Mm. Which that sounds to me like they f- are feeling the what the font of energy that fuels them, right. and and how it connects with to everyone For and sure. everything. Yeah, and that's what you find. Like that's one of the beautiful things, and this is what is interesting about the time we live in, is that if you read the the great mystics across time and space, okay. So if you if you look at like the outward forms of religions, it seems like wow, this is crazy. They're so different. Like Hinduism and Islam. Like there's very little that they have <laughs> yeah. in common, actually. You would think, but what's ironic is when you read like Shankara or you read Ibn al-Arabi, you like you read like the, the, the great mystics of the tradition, they literally explain the exact same experience. Mm-hmm. And this is like from yeah. from black elk, you know, Native American to you know, you know, Changzu, like Taoist to every tradition, like which is this idea of the individuated I, where I see myself as a separate entity, essentially passes away and is, yeah. is discovered as illusory. And it's this blissful awakening. It's like Satchit Ananda, like in the Hindi, mm-hmm. right? It's this idea of it's consciousness, awareness, bliss. Like you're experiencing an awakening that everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. And that in reality, all is one. Even though on, on, on this level, there is a level, the horizontal level of duality. And there's separation, clearly. Like, I'm not you, you're not me. Yeah. Okay, we respect the outward forms. But in the highest estimation of things, this is some type of like divine play in which the absolute is somehow... Like there, there's all these mirrors or points of consciousness that are participating in this like divine play. Mm. You know what I mean? And we're mm. all taking part in it and it's all happening through us. Like we're all kind of vessels or mirrors reflecting the one light. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I agree. And I think the one, yeah, the, so the way that I can conceptualize it. And again, I think that is actually one of the reasons that the religions are so different mm. is we are trapped in a box mm-hmm. of our own like experience and we can only really visualize things that exist within our, you know, the general sphere that we exist in. Sure. We can't really think of, imagine an alien, you know, as much as we want to, right. like, because it's probably something beyond our wildest dreams in, in its shape or, sure. or thought or however. Um, and it's the same with, it's certainly the same with something like, like God. So when, or like the truth. So when someone is, is allowed out of their box to see, you know, beyond it, they can only visualize it or conceptualize it in a way in which they have already experienced the world, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's when these religions become so vastly different. It's not because, as you said, the, the true inspiration is different, mm-hmm. but because the way the, the lives these people lived are different. They're from around different places in the world, different times in history. And of course they'll see it differently. There's, sure. there's no way you can, like if I, I'm sure if I, if I have a vision such as that, I haven't had anyone yet, but if I had something like that, I'm sure it would have to be conceptualized in, in a way that I could understand it. Yeah, that's amazing insight. Yeah. Yeah, that's deep. And I, you know, I always go back to one of my favorite, you know, 
allegories, which is Plato's cave allegory. I love that know? one. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. And this, <laughs> and this like gets back also like I thought of it earlier when you were mentioning like spirituality versus religion and all religions starting with like a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's coming out of the cave is the spiritual, exactly is the spiritual awakening, right? So it's like and religion is is someone coming back into the cave and trying to explain it to people who haven't seen it. Well, this is <laughs> like what I would say, like which is essentially what you're saying, but just to like refine it, is it like okay, Plato's cave analogies is all these people in the cave, they've lived their entire life in the cave, their shadows on the wall, mm-hmm. they think that is existence, that is everything. Then one man, all of a sudden, he becomes free looks about the cave, finds that there's a light source on the other end, goes towards that other end, and finds himself in the world. Mm. And that there's an entire world, infinitely more vast, beautiful, colorful, etc., the world. After exploring for a while, of course, he wants to come back and tell his people, like, everything we thought was reality, it's not reality. Right? But they can't understand it. But they can't understand it because they have no reference point for what he's talking Mm. about. And so at first, they just... Is dumbfounded, but then, and this is why Plato was so insightful because at some point he says, then they they come from just being confused to actually hating this man. Yeah, because he, what he's saying is is fundamentally undermining their belief about what reality is. Yeah, and that is uncomfortable. People scare. It's scary. It's just really is. You know what I mean? And so, what I see is like religion. Where the religions are, you know. These experiences that are, you know, awakenings where somehow certain individuals find themselves outside of the cave and then they come back and they, they explain it. And most people reject them often. I mean, you know, yeah. what happened to Jesus, Muhammad, like, I mean, it just happens. But those that follow them, okay, some of them are going to like take the method, like the original disciples of buddha yeah who are like yo the, okay he's not just saying you know worship his teeth and like you yeah, know what i mean yeah, he's exactly. saying like do what i do yeah, yeah this is how you get out so they get out but over time you know i think people people yeah. are going to embrace the path but fewer and fewer are going to get out of the cave so then what you have and this is what i feel like imam al-ghazali was really getting to is like he's this great theologian and teaching mm-hmm. the sacred law but He's surrounded by people that are talking about it, or talking about what's outside of the cave, mm. but none of them have been outside. Yeah. And so yeah, it just yeah, becomes yeah. this weird echo chamber where, yeah, yeah. and then it's totally. like it, the people, you know, you talk about like the hierarchy of the popes and, you know, now yeah. we, we, the, all the history books are open so we can read about like the popes that like poison their brother and you know they they sent an army over here and they consolidated power and the medici family was the most powerful like money lenders so then they had three of their sons be the popes like we just but and their official doctrine is the pope is infallible essentially the representative of god on earth so we look at that as like yo, that's absurd yeah of course but again it's like people inside the cave who hadn't got out Mm -hmm interpreting jesus who has as far as i see got out yeah, of the no, cave no, and yeah. and and so they're and they're doing all type of weird darkness and like controlling people and stuff like that it's power games and it's because they're in the cave it's stuff. because they've never actually gotten out no, but yeah. it's messed up because they're claiming to be the ones that know about outside the cave well and that's that's the whole yeah it's the whole idea there is i totally agree and that's 
yeah, that's what I've noticed too. Is there's the dimension that that's added is these people of power up here, mm-hmm. who again don't understand the spiritual aspect of it, mm-hmm. but see it as but see they can they're 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 intelligent enough to see that oh wow this wasn't a very important event and, and mm. people notice and people are and it's changing people's minds and it's mm. and it's causing a stir and so I'm going to take advantage of this you know, I, I want this stir is 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 uh, something that I can profit from right mm-hmm. so people can people think that way but mm-hmm. again sure. it's because they're seeing the world very much those people also it's just interesting because I I have and while I was here I did a little like stock market reading and stuff just to just, you know, to dabble, I guess. And also, but it made me, it was interesting because it was the first time I had really delved into this world that I kind of was always kind of, you know, rejected and like. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, yeah, the way that they, you know, describe these things is you have to see the world as it is and to them as it is, is point blank, right? Face value, visual, you know, or the, you know, knowing about people's emotions and using that, you know, like, like they say, the stock market is like a big crowd of people, and you can't forget that ever. Mm. That that it really is just in that. So the emotions play play in certainly, and in, in values and religions and everything is playing in this big mass of people trying to make trying to steal everyone each other's money, basically. <laughs> right. um, and that's the way the guy the guy described it, you know, and, and because that's the way it's very that's the point blank, you know, fully in view reality. And so these people are living in, they're actually living in the most logical, in the most, like, least spiritual reality possible. Right. And that's the reason that they can take advantage of anyone who, the, anyone in between. Because it's a very big spectrum, right? You know, on, at, the high, at the 99th percentile or 100th percentile, you have the Buddha and, and mm-hmm. yeah, and the, some Sufi mystics mm-hmm. like Muhammad, Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, money, like mm-hmm. these really... Exceptional, the great sages. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then on the other, on the and the end of it, I would say you'd find the the, the really power hungry kings, the right. the you know the the huge merchants, these mm-hmm. people who who see the world completely, who don't see the, the hidden truth, any any unseen that doesn't exist to them, and they only see the the real poignant. Right, the, and that's what they what say: cor- corruptimo optima pessimi pessimi. Yeah, which is the the corruption of the best is the worst. Yeah, and that's why it's so atrocious to us. Just everyone cringes naturally when people do. Like it's one thing if someone's just going to do a, a heinous and terrible act, and we're all like, okay, that's bad. But when people do it in the name of God or some higher principle, yeah, yeah. then it like just gets at the core of our being. Like that's the corruption. That's the best. Mm-hmm. ideals that you know we have and you're like doing darkness in the name of it yeah but yeah and that's that's interesting is like you know but the and the human ego is such an interesting thing and, and you know the, these things are going to play out in their various ways and and also i think too like you know to like refine the nuance that analogy is like there's people that get out of the cave and then there's people like but the cave itself has like degrees of darkness. Like there's people that are closer to the light, but maybe they haven't got, yeah. gotten out. You know what I mean? Like, because, you know, and, and that's interesting too, is like, especially now we live in the, you know, in the modern Western world and people are going away from organized religion, but still, and of course, atheism is on the rise, but it's only a fraction of those people that like leave Christianity say they don't believe in some higher power. Like, we intuit. Like, 
Because what I see the atheists is they're like, there is no outside of the cave. There's, it's just a cave. There's yeah. no, but like other people are like, look, man, this whole religion stuff, it's like a lot of it's mumbo jumbo. A lot of it's people ego tripping. A lot of it's like some historical, you know, Power circumstances and, and yeah. stuff like that. But there's some truth. There's truth. Yeah. Like at the, at the essence of it, like there is an outside of the cave, you yeah. know? And that's really interesting. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I've I've you know gone between being being like atheist and not before mm. as well, um, and I think that has to do with some experiences that I've had mm. with uh, yeah some and and like losing yeah like losing faith basically, mm-hmm. um, and but for me the what I've found now is like and it's because I have it's on me to really find this truth you know mm-hmm. like that. It's not, it's not, yeah, it's not like I can't just go out outside by myself and, and call to the sky, God, help me do this, or God, you know, show me the way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more like I have to start you have to see. Cult- cultivating, yes, mm-hmm. cultivating it myself. And then maybe, maybe then, you know, my, my, it'll be, you know, change, completely change my mind. And I can, I'm sure that can happen. Um, and I want it to, really, mm-hmm. because atheism is a very depressing um, reality. Yeah. If you find if that is the reality, yeah, is that not because I really want you know to be with my family forever, or because yeah, because I want heaven or something. It's more just because this world. It, it would just be absurdly arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Like, and it doesn't. Our minds just can't comprehend how arbitrary our existence would be. If we were just, if there was nothing, yeah, like that, just, just is all random. Like, I mean, I know, like the world, and it could just be like, yeah, the universe is so big that it's not random. Everything happens in the universe, but still, like, right, it's not something that we can ever. We we're too limited to to, to, to right. comprehend something like that. Yeah, it's like Shakespeare says something, but there's this line. I wish I remember the whole part, but it's like something full of sound and fury, a yeah. tale told by an. Idiot, signifying nothing. Yeah, that's from the the monologue of uh, of Mac, of I can't remember Macbeth. I just Macbeth. remember like it's, I love it. Dude. Yeah, and it's it's like that. Like, yeah, and we get to this point of like scientifically where it's just like life is but a walking shadow. Yeah, yeah, life a player is who struts and frets his way up on the stage exactly. and is heard no more. Exactly, yeah, is a tale told by an idiot. Idiots full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just pure. That's like. Yeah, atheistic the, depression right there. Yeah, that's nihilism yeah. is really what that is. Yeah, and it's like... That there is nothing nihil. Because, and that's amazing because the more we understand about like how amazing the cosmos is, like in the level of like how we can reach out into the cosmos mm-hmm. and like how vast it is, and also how we can reach down into like the cells and the atoms and like yeah. how sophisticated everything is. We sit right in the middle too, you know. That, like exactly. it's a logarithmic scale, but we're right in the dead center of it because mm. we're in the order of meters. But like you know, the atoms or you know things like atoms and everything is you know about ten to the ten smaller than us. Really, and then uh, the universe is ten to the ten bigger. Really, so we're like right about right in the center of wow. that. So that's amazing. Like, yeah, and that's and a really see, weird, like, come on, yeah. and just mathematics, like a language of in meaning that exists 
abstractly. Yeah. Like math doesn't exist in the world. It exists. Mm-hmm. But you but know we, what I mean? Yeah. We, like it, it, that's an interesting thing too, is like a lot of physicists and scientists are on the side of like math is it's like behind everything. The yeah. And it's behind the scenes of everything and it truly is happening. And, and I, I'm more on the side of it's, it's something that we've made like, like what we use is, is, is more of like a, an idealized form, you know, something we can understand that's like, you know, like in physics, it's a perfect example. We, I've never done, like if, if I, I can spend, you know, you could take a room like your bed, like your bedroom, mm-hmm. which is closed right now. And I could spend absolutely the rest of my life, probably at least months of my life as like a thesis dissertation paper for a PhD to explain every, every force that's going on in there because it's, it's impossible. You know, it's like mm-hmm. to really, truly fully describe that room in real life as a physical like system is almost impossible, mm. which is something that's really amazing to me. Like for example, quantum mechanics is really interesting, which is really just like looking at standard physical motion, like that we understood through Newton, but doing everything as, as those vibrating energy waves instead of particles. And we can't get, we can physically not comprehend or, or even find the, the wave functions for most things in the planet, in the, in the universe, 99%. We know that they exist, and we know that they must, like, like through wave-particle duality, they, they exist in those forms. Because like, I always thought that the bigger the things got, the, they just didn't act as waves anymore. Because mm-hmm. that's what I, and I talked to my professors about this. I was like, I always thought that, you know, really small things are waves. Like, everything is wave-particle duality, but if it gets really complicated, like, you know, the bottles or cans around us, you know, mm-hmm. like, like this mug, I would assume that the mug is a physical object and not really a wave because there's too much going on. There's too many interactions and too much that's really forcing it to be in one place. Mm-hmm. But they disagreed with me. They said, no, it is still wave particle duality. It's still truly true down to the core that this is still, you know, vibrating waves instead of energy, instead of just particles. Um, and that was actually really interesting to me because that because like I said, the only system that can be described fully in in the wave functions given because normally we work with energy just the energy levels afterwards because the wave functions are no longer possible to to calculate. The only one that you can calculate is hydrogen. Hmm. So the rest of the elements are uncalculatable, and that's just pure hydrogen sitting alone. Like one molecule is the only thing we can really solve. Hmm. After that, it just becomes too complicated. Like it's too much for us after that, right? And too like, much for our supercomputers. And too what much is for, like black? You know, the, um, too you much know, for our entire year, our entire species. What do they call it? Black matter or black? Oh, dark matter. Dark matter, but it's ninety-eight or ninety-six percent, mm-hmm. and there's no like it's never been observed. No, we we tried really we tried really hard. We're still trying to observe it. There are these massive sensors that we're building to try to observe this thing, and. Mm-hmm. and like every time we build one of the sensors, it has an upper limit, meaning like or a, a lower limit, I guess. Like it's so there's a thing called cross-sectional area for for, for any particle, any object. That kind of explains like how much it interacts with stuff, right? Like light has a really big cross-sectional area, especially relative to its size, because it's electromagnetic waves, and everything pretty much produces electromagnetic waves. So it's very much affected by like particles and electrons and everything. So it has a really high cross-sectional area, and it also depends on what it's interacting with. But especially anything that is electrically charged, it has a high one towards. But 
something like dark matter. So, so something like dark matter, you can calculate, you know, so depending on, based on how we haven't just observed it, what the upper limit of how big it, of how small its cross section is. Um, and so these giant vats in, of like liquid helium, or we use like liquid xenon, I think, and all of these like crazy measurement devices to try and just measure one dark molecule particle, dark matter particle, because um, we know they just have to be flying around all around us all the time if, if it really is exactly the way we th- we're seeing and nothing. You know, like, so we know that the lower limit is like way smaller than an atom, you know, many time, many orders smaller. Still haven't found anything. Um, some people don't think it exists, and I'm probably more on that side too. I think really? because I, I've, one of the things I find very interesting is emergent phenomena in physics, which is a, this concept of, um, the individual parts cannot describe the physics, the like the inter- the the properties of large scale interactions. Mm. For example, so you can't reduce it. That's mm. like the whole reductionism. Yeah, basically. reductionism doesn't work. Like, there's a point at which it, it like, in, and in real like in, and especially with real objects, like metal and stuff, it and wood and large large macro macro scale objects it doesn't work. Um, a perfect example is fluid mechanics. Like a water, like we have all these principles, like buoyancy and things that we've are, that our culture has used for thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Like how we've built many of our of our monuments. I, I think how we've built a lot of the, the ones we don't understand too is mm-hmm. that we used water because we really truly mm-hmm. understood canal building like and water in Egypt and stuff. You yeah, I think we built the pyramids with water mm-hmm. because because it they they had a mastery of it by this point. Of canal building of like understanding fluid and water, and so I'm sure they could, they would use it to their advantage. I think it'd be silly for them to just carry get a bunch of slaves and pull mm-hmm. things on the dirt. Mm-hmm. But um, the fluid mechanics does not. You cannot like look at individual molecules of water and describe fluid mechanics. There's there is a gap between the individual molecules and when you actually get this physical interaction with you know mm-hmm. millions of particles. And we don't understand, we can't get it, um, and we still haven't been able to just, have we still haven't been able to step up from the small, you know, the in the micro scale of, of a liquid to the macro scale and, like, describe the physics. It just doesn't work. Um, and there's a lot of other examples of that, which I think this is interesting, and I think that's also poignant for kind of our talk, is that the um, these emergent phenomenon are greater than the sum of their parts. So, like, we as a living organism can have something at, like, a soul that doesn't exist, or that, 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 that exists in, like, a separate, in a manner that can't be described by physics now. Sure. Like, same thing, like, dark matter could, could ex- like, this extra energy in matter could exist because of the interaction of a galaxy. Like, because all of these these amazing crazy physical things are going on and motion and spinning and all of this energy that it could weigh more than we expect it to. Mm-hmm. But like the reason we know there's dark matter is because, you know, if you think about like a, a spinning disc, like a, like a record, the, mm-hmm. the edge of the record has to be moving faster than the middle mm-hmm. because it's the only way that everything stays together. Sure. But a galaxy doesn't do that. It spins the same speed no matter how far you are away from the center which tells us that we know that there has to be a, a weight, um, there has to be more mass than we're seeing 
Like it, mm. because the mass has to be has to be distributed in a way that it keeps everything the same speed. Mm. And so the dark matter is one. Of, that's one of the, that's the one of the observations that we know there has to be some extra matter that we're just not seeing, and a lot more of it than we're not seeing because somehow just looking at the stars and calculating the weight from just stars, it would be faster on the edge, but there's more weight in the middle than because it's being attracted. The dark matter is all being attracted by the black hole in the center of galaxies, but, but it's not, we can't see it. And, and somehow it's way more weight in the middle to make it move it, to make it move as fast as it is compared to the outside. So it's very interesting. You know, there's lots of examples like that. So we know there's something going on we just don't understand. But it could certainly be like an information, like a form of, of, of interaction that causes this. And the same thing, I think, for us, you know, is that, that we are complex enough that, that consciousness and that, you know, our spirit could, could really exist or dwell within us in a way because we are a living being. Like, and mm-hmm. that's... Uh, that that is a specific special phenomenon that gives us extra things beyond just being like a machine. Like I said, right. we're going towards that machine thing more right. and more now. Like our brain's a computer and our body's just a big, you know, like, yeah. like eventually, like you know, there's there's a good like a, this a sci-fi thing in the future that a lot of people think is that eventually people will choose to cut their arms off to get implants because like the because like the mechanical arm will be, be so much better than human <laughs> arms you know like you know that could happen right but but at the same time we've also experienced have have had really interesting things have like stories have been told like um a, a cattle herder had a heart attack and he was given a, a new heart you know as a, as for as a transplant the transplant was from a recently deceased um, girl who was who died in a car accident. The girl was a vegan, and he no longer could eat meat afterwards because it made him sick. Wow. Like th- that, her heart like changed the way he could eat because Amazing. you know, like so. There's like there's examples of that happening. That that like these our organs are not are connected to the, the sure. whole thing. It's not just a machine. 100%. It's not just this one, you know, our, your, your heart doesn't just beat and move your blood. It does truly have, have part of your soul in it, mm, part of you mm, in it. Mm, mm. Um, mm. And that's really, again, like that's showing there's like everything is, the sum of our whole body is, is creating our, right. this deeper unseen. Yeah, and consciousness is such a like fertile field of investigation. And you yeah. see the materialist understanding that it's a big uh, question mark in the whole like paradigm because everything that we observe, everything that we know as far as you know what we believe about the world, this planet, ourselves, the cosmos, from the Big Bang to evolution from single-celled organisms all the way up through you know what I mean like mm-hmm. through natural selection. It is all known through human consciousness. Yeah. And so... We we figured it all out. But we can't understand human consciousness. That's the thing. Like, we don't understand the the thing that figures it all out. Yeah. We have no idea. So, and that's interesting, because I I recently saw... So, they're starting to figure things, more things out. And one of the things that actually helped was the LSD studies that they've been Mm -hmm. doing. Because they're finally doing... It's finally been approved for for trial, Mm -hmm. for, for psychological trials. So, they've been... 
looking at how the, how the brain re- interacts in LSD. And what they're realizing is that they think that, so this is, and again, this doesn't, this is using lots of terminology, like we're talking about, that these words don't really mean anything. <laughs> And so that this is this doesn't really just to me doesn't totally explain it, but this is what science is starting to you know because science invents words. I know this. I'm a scientist, so I, mm-hmm. I've seen it. They, we invent words, that, and we use these words very interchangeably, very easily, very you know offhand almost. Like mm-hmm. it makes like it means something inherently, but it doesn't. It's a word we made up mm-hmm. that doesn't really exist in the world around us. But a good example is so they say that our consciousness. This, this is a way that, that we're describing now is a controlled hallucination. Because when LSD, hap- when LSD is in our brains, we notice that, that you know, the path, we use more pathways than we generally do. Like our brains are opened up truly you know, to more things, and, and, it, and it shows in the way how we are visually, how our perception changes, how we see things and hear things that aren't there mm-hmm. and all of that. And so what they, and this also is linked to, you know, they studied when people, people's brains when they thought about things. Like if they said, you know, imagine something, you know, what, or imagine saying certain something. Like they found that, that they can find the signals in our brain and they're the same signals as when we're actually experiencing that, that mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, they, you know, like um, this, the guy, the, the, I saw a video about this actually, and this guy, you know, did an experiment where he, he said, he, was, he thought, the, the words, I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. And the computer that was studying his brain pulled that out of his, like pulled that out of his head. Like, like got, it was, it was, it was very muffled, but once he told us what it said, you could totally hear it. Like that mm. it was like coming. So they, it was based only on brain signals that Whoa, they were trying so the, to. They were able to translate brain signals basically to language. To language. Yeah. To close, close, close enough to language that so so what they're saying is like so when we are thinking about something mm-hmm. when you're imagining a field of flowers or or mm-hmm. or reciting you know a um a poem that you that you wrote mm-hmm. you are truly your brain is actually firing the same the same place that it would if you're saying it or if you're really seeing one it's just not as strong mm-hmm. the level is lower and so that's why they say that that's why like something like a hallucination when you're when you're brain no longer has control over the level of, of firing is right. when you start seeing things that aren't there and you can start really having these crazy experiences is because your brain is now hallucinate or your brain is now overstimulated to pass the standard. So the, that it's your, your perception is actually um, think actually thinks it sees things in real, in real life right. um, versus the normal feeling you get when you're thinking about, something when mm-hmm. and and it's it's a much fit you know much hazier image or a much less real experience um so that's why they're saying that now that's the way they think they think our brains are like producing consciousness is that it's it's like in in the in the real world or you know when the when the real things are happening to us our brains are you know firing a certain way and when when we're thinking about them it's firing the same way so that it's the same thing when we're thinking about a new experience and when we have that experience. That's why some people, you know, it's, it's it, certain examples people can, like, have less traumatic experiences or, like, you know, can get over fears if they imagine themselves in these situations because that is a much less extreme version of the true, you know, like, people scared of heights. They can imagine jumping off, right. jumping out of a plane and skydiving and that would help them in, in an event where they did that. <laughs> 
Yeah, and imagination is interesting because, like you say, I mean, and imagination can sometimes be more intense than, like, lived reality. And I think especially yeah. for creative, creative people, like, it's almost like they strengthen that ability to, like, see. And that's another thing, too, like, even the term hallucination as someone who has had some experiences with psychedelics yeah it's like i like the term psychedelics more than hallucinogen because hallucinate is like to see something that isn't there psychedelic is psyche manifesting it's mind yeah. manifesting yeah so yeah. sometimes you're just seeing things that aren't there but other thing other times you're picking up on you're just seeing things in a way that you wouldn't see in normal consciousness, but in some senses is more real. Sometimes mm. you can pick up on things that are more real. Yeah. Sometimes you can, you know, it's why like a lot of these, you know, for instance, I, I, I was just listening to this podcast about how a lot of uh, athletes are microdosing on psilocybin, you know, magic mushrooms. And what they find, what these athletes have been reporting after, like, microdosing is like you take a dose. I don't know if you know, but yeah, just for people that don't. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, you take a dose which is so low that it doesn't really affect your consciousness. At, it, you, like, the first day or so, you may feel a little, like, weird or a little giddy, but it's not like you're high. You see yeah. what I'm saying? And, but then your body adapts. And so then, like, in subsequent days, you don't actually feel anything. But... These these athletes report that it gives them like this this sixth sense where they're actually like able to intuit what's going to happen before it happens. Like they're telepathic. They know what their opponent is going to do before they do it. And this is like I've experienced this on, you know, psychedelics where like I knew what my uh, friend was going to say before he said it. I knew what he was thinking. We had like this this ability to communicate in this telepathic way. And again, it's not just because you're tripping. Like it's not yeah, just because yeah, yeah. like I'm tripping. Sometimes you just trip and you like yeah. things start to appear weird and you're like, oh, it's too much. But and this gets back to this thing of what is consciousness. It's like, and that's why like Timothy Leary. You know, he said when he first did psilocybin, he's like, I'm a Harvard psychologist. I've been studying consciousness and the mind for decades, but I just learned in one four hour trip more than 20 plus years of study about yeah, the mind. No, it's interesting. Yeah. And of course, Timothy Leary, we could critique the way he kind of like went off the rails and like popularized the kind of like drug party culture and not necessarily just like the pure like research like he actually hurt like what got all these drugs like schedule one made illegal yeah, in yeah. 1970 was a lot of it was because of him because he's like you know what I mean? like everybody let's trip out yeah. whereas other people like aldous huxley were much more reserved like yo we shouldn't just give this out to people like this is really powerful yeah and we need to like research it you see what i'm saying anyway point being is that like you know the way i look at it is like there's two basic theories, and this is really simplifying things, but is uh, of consciousness. One is that, which is like the modern way to look at it, is that the mind generates consciousness, the brain rather. Yeah. The brain generates the mind, which consciousness, and it's just neurons and quarks firing around the brain. And the reason that that developed was 
there was some evolutionary benefit to, you know, having something that it's like to be you as an individual. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it it's purely illusory that I think I'm a me. Because all I am is this, like, strange meat vehicle, which is just created to pass on its own genetic material. But the mm-hmm. fact that I think, oh, I'm me, and look at me. You know what I mean? And I walk around, and I'm bark and blue. It's like, that's actually a trick that is pr- played by these quarks and neurons firing in my brain. That's one paradigm. The other paradigm, which it seems to me is pretty unanimously asserted by the, you know, traditional people's world wisdom traditions, is that the brain, the brain or the, the human being vessel is like a recept- receptacle, mm. receiving consciousness to a certain degree. And like to like use modern analogies, it's like, you know, your television is receiving the signal. Like, you know, a small child looks at the people on TV and is like, there's a man in the TV. You know what I mean? But like, as adults, we know, no, this television doesn't contain the show, but that this box, the physical thing is receiving a signal. Yeah. And so in a sense, the, the brain, you could think of it as like a reducing valve. So like, it's like, takes consciousness, which is potentially like infinite in vastness mm. and, and, and awareness and potentiality, and it reduces it to a, to a small level, a small band, you know, you know what I mean? So that you know, basically people, you can think of it, like people are on channels. Like, you know, you meet people and you vibe, you know, we talk about like yeah, that yeah. person's vibration. And like some people are like, they're on like the channel of like consumption or like, yeah, man, I just need a, I need a new Rolex and I, I just, my 401k and oh man, yeah, I got to yeah, hurry out of work. And all. and it's like, that's what channel that dude is on. Or mm-hmm. then you like go to Ubud and there's this dude's like, I just want to feel spiritually free after my yoga class. I yeah. just want to take a mud bath. It's like, oh, that dude's on that channel. Like yeah, he's yeah, on yeah, a channel. Yeah. And then other people on different channels, you know what I mean? Yeah. But in certain experiences, whether you know, it's like creative experiences or other like peak experiences. Like you're a musician. Like there's something that happens when you're flowing with the other musicians. Yeah, it's like you're in time stops and like, and some people experience it through like meditation or prayer or m- mystical experiences through worship or, or the sacred. Other people experience it playing basketball or surfing or whatever. Like you that, that like you're in the zone, you know, time yeah. out of time. On other people, like through psychedelics, is how a lot of modern kind of materialist people get open to like the first a realm of yeah. consciousness, Just which is so far beyond. Yeah, and so that's really what I'm ta- what I'm thinking about is like, and and I think too is like people that I think creative people tend to be less atheist. I mean, creative people also tend to like be more on the scale of like liberal and you know, less interested in like rules and organized religion, but they tend to like believe in the unseen. And I think it, there's an experiential, like once you have certain experiences, you may not like know what to call it, or you may not have like some official dogma, but the fact that this is all just a like accident and means nothing, it becomes hard to reconcile with your own experiences of meaning and like transcendence or you know what I mean? Yeah. Also, also the 
a, a bad conclusion that I see about the if, if everything means nothing, then then you really can be like I mean like a funny example is have you seen Rick and Morty? Have you seen that show yet? It's, I would I would recommend it. It is like a it is like a um it's like a, it's like an animated cartoon like adult yeah, adult I've heard style. But it's recommend it. it's very like the reason it's it's good is it, it really shows like the the like scientific perspective of it because the main one of the main characters is quote unquote the smartest person in the world like the smartest the smartest man he's definitely the smartest human. And he's smarter than most aliens and things he interacts with too. He's like the smartest thing on the in the universe, basically. Whoa. And so, but it really messes up his personality. Rick is this is Rick is the mm. person, and and he becomes you know he's like he's an atheist and it, he's got like terrible mood swings because of it. He's like an alcoholic because he doesn't you know care. Mm. Um, he's very depressed and and you know and the the nothing matters like nihilistic kind of kind of like joke, almost morbid joke. It's just kind of like sprung throughout the whole, the whole show. But it's really interesting to see, you know, just to see is like, what do people, you know, it's, it's showing like where we're going and what, um, you know, like this, this kind of mindset is like in many ways the ideal for a lot of people. And also it still shows that there's no perfect way to live. Like, even though he is, you know, ideal in, in like the scientific and like modern perspective is like an ideal, you know, he's like, he can, he can he, he has a he has like this portal gun that lets him go through dimensions so he can go to like any reality mm. and like he can you know see any you know just basically has control over everything um but but yet is like he doesn't have control over his own mind mm. still like those examples one of one of the most important ones is he like gets into a relationship in one of the episodes and then at the end it like doesn't work and it was like he was very happy with it and she he like attempts suicide at the end in mm. in the show um, again, it's because nothing matters for him, right? There's, he has no reason. He's got nothing to, to hold on to his own life. You know, like he's just living life as long as it's fun. And if it's not mm. fun, then there's no reason to live it anymore. And I've totally experienced that feeling mm. as in my atheist points mm-hmm. when it's like, well, there's no, like, like the highs are high, but the lows are very low. And then you don't really have any, any, if you, if you don't, yeah, if nothing matters, then what does your life matter? Right. And, and also, and on an extension of nothing matters, then, then what do morals matter? Like, why you don't need to care about anyone? You, like, it's actually better to not because it all all that matters is you're happy and safe and healthy. Right. And damn and, it, to yeah, caring else. about other people, it's gonna actually hurt you because yeah. of you know what I mean, yeah. So, so that's that's a worry to me, right? Is that like that's why there needs to be some reconciling between the modern like you know, scientific view and the spiritual view, which is totally possible. For sure. Because um, I don't think that nothing in the, in the modern physical concept explains anything spiritual. It doesn't, they don't, they're not, they're actually mutually exclusive. They don't overlap. Right. But people see them as overlapping. Um, they see like, even though that there's the, like most of like, especially the early physicists too, most of them were religious, but For still sure. like they don't, most of the scientists, like they, they like the perfect example is it's a joke that a physicist, that a that like a scientist, he's an evolutionary biologist, but he said like, you know, the joke is in science they say give us one miracle, and we can extra- we can describe the rest. Mm-hmm. But the one miracle is the creation and existence of all life on Earth and all and all the got rules of physics that govern them and created in a single instant. From nothing. From nothing. Yeah. Which is, you know, like, just one miracle. One free miracle. <laughs> yeah, just give me one. And yeah. the one is everything. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And just create all of it and start time and give us physics and all the laws. Absolutely. And we can describe the rest. So yeah, honestly, that. that's not at all. So they're completely mutually exclusive. That's not, and it's the same thing. The why behind the why is spirituality. Like, okay, right. you can describe why a ball falls to the floor in physics, but why does that happen? But, but why does it fall in this in such a way? Or why is that those, why are those the laws that govern the ball falling? Those are things we can't, that spirituality describes, but that physics cannot. Yeah. Physics can't tell you why the rules are the way they are. They just are. And that, and again, those are, those are the reason, you know, the why the rules is God and the rules are the what he implemented or they, they it implemented. I don't know yeah. And I think really it comes down to just like humility, man. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we've discovered that should make us less in awe. Like oh, if anything, like everything yeah. that we had discovered, it's like, what? Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, like. It's way more crazy than we Like, thought. just, you could spend your whole life being in awe of the human eye and mm-hmm. sight and just the, the complex pro- processes. And that's what, like, there's certain people that have written books. Uh, I read this book called, like, Darwin's Black Box or something, which was talking about, like, the level of understanding of, like, certain things at, at the time of Darwin versus now, like, how complex the eye is. Because, and one of it, he, he goes, like, talking about evolution and this idea that like okay things just over time got a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better mm-hmm. and then boom we got the eye well the eye is so complex that and and this was a beautiful analogy it's like imagine a mouse trap evolving it's like the the problem with that is that you don't just have a better like a little bit better mousetrap. A mousetrap is like three things. It's like the thing that goes up, the thing that holds it and then whatever. You know what I mean? But if one of those doesn't work, it's or, not a mouse trap. there's nothing. It's nothing. It's yeah. literally nothing. And the eye is like millions of processes happen. You know what I mean? Like it's so yeah. complex. And if one of them doesn't happen, there's no sight. So it's not you see what I'm saying? Like stuff like that. I think the most yeah, the most insane part about it is that for most people when like 90% or more, it totally works fine every time. Right. Like, and you know, like every human being is born, like, you know, save a few people right. are born with perfectly fine, perfect, perfect vision. So crazy. And, and like, yeah, that is insane. And it's also insane how, how it can work even though, it, even when it's not perfect, like, you know, as mm-hmm. I'm getting older, I've noticed my eyes have been deteriorating mm-hmm. some. Right. And it's, I used to have really good vision and it's not as good now. Mm-hmm. But it still works. Like, you know, like it's not like just this slight change and it falls apart. It's like it, it can stay together. It's actually a really interesting um, uh, thing I was talking about with uh, Jai. Do you know Jai? He's a, a friend of Mina's and them too. It's, he's a permaculturist. And, and, he, and I was talking about this. We were, we were saying like what I really think and what he agrees would be like the most ideal in the future of like technology and living on earth is that, you know, some of my friends in, in Berkeley, you know, the ideal is that we separate ourselves entirely from nature. The only way that we can prevent it, prevent its destruction is for us to completely remove ourselves from, from the cycle. Mm-hmm. So we make our own food in laboratories. We don't touch mm-hmm. the soil at all. We don't touch anything. We make everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, all of our waste is reused, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So very high-tech science, right? That's the goal that he sees is that we have to completely be separate. But then I see the other goal is that I find ourselves, I think one of the reasons we're here is to be stewards of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're entirely, if, if we are really this different than the rest of life on earth, then we're here for, to protect the life on earth. 
mm-hmm. and not kill it. Um, and so one of the things that I can see that happen that I can see happening with that is as we get more and more, we're learning also more, a lot more about the ecosystems, about like how ecosystems form, mm-hmm. how to, and even how to like maintain them. And I think that's teaching us a lot of that's, that that's the kind of knowledge that our brains are there for, I think, is we can piece apart, we can take apart these complex systems and learn how to, how to use them and, and also learn how to protect them. And one of the interesting things that I can see that coming from that is like living technology, you know, things that are made with like, you know, one of the examples that, that Jai and I were talking about was like a ship that was made of like, the body is made of a coral. So it like lives in the, in the sea. It, mm. it uses like, you know, the, it, it wants to, like, it wants to be a ship. You know, like we, we use things, to, we grow things together. Like, you know, the sails are made of some, are made of a plant that, mm-hmm. you know, that needs the sunlight, but also grows back quickly. So, you know, like we can, so the sails can be both used, it's strong and taut and be used as a sail, but also as a living thing, thing that needs the light from the mm-hmm. sun and the wind to get air. You know, like maybe it's yeah. like an air so plant. Yeah, so just like know? every other creature, like we're part of this, the cycle of things. Yeah. Like we're not destroying it, like... One thing that was amazing that I was I was listening to this podcast recently with this mycologist who was mm, you know yeah fungus and like dude I'm so amazed super cool it's like one of my favorite topics is yeah. just fungus yeah. because it's the craziest thing the largest organism known organism on planet Earth it is is a network yeah. of fungus in the Pacific Northwest. In Washington State. Yeah, it's, it's like the whole thing, yeah. You know what I mean? It, like, covers the entire state. It's like a living one being. Like, mm-hmm. But anyway, what this mycologist was saying is that um, he believes that if you go in these, like, old-growth forests, what happens is that these, these uh, specific fungi infect specific trees, and then they like take out a whole area of the forest essentially and then they decompose and then the the fungi like feed on them and then this creates like the prairies in between so these open fields and then the fields between the trees those support you know the animals like the deer yeah, and the elk and, yeah. and then they feed off it and then their waste puts nitrogen in the soil. And then this all like causes plants it, to grow. It causes there. everything. And the, another thing like Northern California, the forest fires, like uh, my friend Yahya, uh, he went, um, he was in the forest and he was with this guide. And it's actually funny because he said like he went with his parents and he, it was like in the redwood forest. And he was yeah, like, awesome. he just wanted to go. And the, the, his parents were like, let's go with a guide. And he's like, no, like the last thing he wanted to do is be with a guide. Like he just wanted to explore. But he said, but I was wrong because this guide was just like a wealth of information. And so one thing that this guide said was that, can you guess what's the best thing for forests? Fires. And everyone's like, rain, fires. Yeah. And if... You know, and it's just the beauty of nature is that, you know, the the dead leaves fall off and it collects and then a fire comes and it, it you know, clears that out. And this actually, you know, puts the rejuvenates the soil. And But if the fires aren't allowed to come, 
it's very like dangerous yeah, because then it, it burns, it, it, it builds up. And then when the fire comes, it rages. And the thing is, is that the roots of the trees and the trees themselves are built or evolved to sustain a certain amount of heat. Yeah. And after that, they but after that, they can't survive. Yeah. And so the, these regular fires are actually the best thing that can happen. And so again, like the whole cycle of, you know, birth, life, destruction, you know, it's all, it's all part of it, of it. Yeah. you know. And that's why, again, like you talk about these cultures with like multiple deities. And and I think like from the Islamic perspective, like there's this idea, okay, God is one, but God has 99 names. Yeah. And these are also seen as representative infinite. And yeah, yeah so like most Muslims will look at like Hindu culture and tradition when the Muslims went to India, they saw like, okay, all these deities, that's like confusing. But when they talk, talked, especially to like the, the Brahmins who were yeah. like very much monotheist, that's yeah. all is that is, is the ultimate reality. Then it kind of explained like, these are aspects. Yeah. This and it's okay. Part. We believe the same thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. They always, they end up agreeing. Yeah. At first they're, they're yeah. confused. Like the same thing happened. I, well, that's one of the things I really like is during the polytheistic religions, they always agreed. Like, like Alexander the Great came when he took Egypt when he was on his mm-hmm. con- when he was on his conquest. He didn't fight in Egypt. He didn't use any of his armies right. to, to conquer Egypt. He used religion to conquer Egypt. Mm-hmm. He went to the Siwa Oasis, which is one of the most mm-hmm. poignant oases oases in in Egypt. One of the most important mm-hmm. um, for the kings and royalty, mm-hmm. um, and um, it had been used since pre-dynastic times before it's been important since before Egypt. So it's, it's a very, very old, powerful Hmm. Oracle. And, uh, Alexander went to the Oracle and at the Oracle, the sea oasis, the main God there is an, is a ram headed God. Um, so it's just a ram head on the side of this, like of this like spring coming out of, out of in the middle of the desert. And that is what the, the oasis looks like to at the time and still does. Uh, so, an interesting thing is that in Macedonia, where Egypt, where Alexander's from, there's this aspect of Zeus with ram horns, um, and he's kind of he's kind of a big deal there. And so when Alexander came to the oasis, he associated that oasis with Zeus. He said, "Oh, it's it's a it's a temple, it's an oracle to Zeus." So to him, he immediately you know equiv- made these two equivalent. He's like, "It's you know they're the same mm-hmm. that they're to, that these people I think at the time understood this more." That there's like one overall truth, mm-hmm. and that each tribe has their own concepts of these or gods because there's something beyond we, that what we can understand. Right. So this is all tied to our culture and our region, but they're but they're the same god. Like, mm. So um, he went to the oracle and he prayed and he said, "Who is the rightful heir? Who is the rightful pharaoh of Egypt?" And it said Alexander. And so he brought that back to the king to the to the to the you know to to Memphis to like the main god to the to the main pharaoh, city of the pharaohs, and they crowned him pharaoh. And so he, they didn't have to, they were fine. They were like, oh, cool, okay. Bloodless New pharaoh. pharaoh. Like, yeah, 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 no problem, because he just, he did, it, he did it through their religion. Because he, instead of spurning it as some different or right. wrong religion, he saw it as, as representative of the same truth, just a different, just a different example. And that, that's true in a lot, that, sh- that shows up a lot in sure. these old polytheistic religions. Like, there was much more understood that these gods were aspects of the same, the same spirit, and that they just were shown differently. 
with the different from different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that it was much more commonly understood. Like it wasn't like it didn't need to be like you didn't need to be these these high like religious mystics to understand this, which was. I I wonder why that changes. Why that seems to change more. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's from you know people trying to take power, or or it's just from a change in consciousness. But it's an interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is like we're in this time now where it's like people need to. I don't know. Like on one hand, I think people are like starting to transcend some of these like categories that like people use to draw lines in the sand like i'm in this you're that we like to make things we like right. to, we, that's like the whole you know world though it's yeah like, if you think about it people can spend i thought about this too when i was doing the stock stuff again is that mm-hmm. people spend their entire lives in a game that we made <laughs> you know like people spend their entire lives worrying and thinking and and planning about a system that humans created ourselves and they kind of have no interest in anything beyond that. And I think it's because the things beyond that, like nature, the ecosystems, earth, the universe, like truth, mm. religion, is too complicated for most people, or right. for really for anyone. It's such yeah. a... Com- it's, it's, it's the it, realm it's, of chaos. Yeah, it's, it cannot be compartmentalized, and we really don't like that. So, mm. so people find much more comfort in, in, human endeavor, in, in human-created endeavors, like right. civilization, religions, or... Um, languages, yeah, money, economy, all of that's made by us, and all of that's for us. It's this thing we made to entertain ourselves, to keep ourselves from looking at these, these other, the other much more yeah, gray mm-hmm. world around us. That's mm-hmm. too, that's, that for, my, for many people is just something that they don't want to turn to. And I can understand that. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm not that person. And, and sometimes I wish I was, I'm not going to lie, but... Mm-hmm. But it, it's 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 nice to, uh, you know, like I guess blissful ignorance, right? It's like it's, it's the, nice. Dude, but. The, the dude who sold out his compatriots because he wanted a steak in the Matrix, like he wanted yeah. to eat a steak. Like yeah, he was yeah. like, I know it's not real. You know, there's a certain level to which, yeah, there's a there's a red pillar, blue pill. Like if you start to question deeply your received paradigm of your culture, whatever it is. And like Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, like he, he used to call it detribed. In other words, each person is born into a tribe. Even in the modern world, okay, we think, yeah. well, not us, no, you know, but okay, you're born into like a nation. And in that nation, you're born into like a local City and, and a family and first, an economic bracket and an economic bracket and this and that. I mean, like, because yeah. I, I think about this all the time. Like, I like to think of like my personal opinions or my political opinions as my own. Yeah, but most of them line up pretty well with people that are born in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, and lived in you know the Bay Area versus people that lived in you know Mississippi or yeah. you know what I mean. Like, I know, yeah. So I like to think. No, I came to this conclusion on my own, but it's like. Well, if I would have been born into a different family, and you know what I mean? Yeah, it's. I, I totally understand. It's like it's it's harder to think certain ways. I mean, you can't even think certain ways if you haven't been exposed to those exactly. ideas, and and so like it's it's 
Certainly true. I mean, I'm from North Florida, which is like basically Georgia, mm-hmm. and I did. I I am much more outlier. I mean, even still, though, my hometown is a college town mm-hmm. and is one of the more liberal cities in the whole state. So it's probably the reason I am the way I am. Right. Certainly, is there's a higher. I I can I could actually be exposed to those ideas there, unlike in other parts of Florida where it would be much more difficult for me to even know what Sufism is, for example, right. because they don't tell us about that. Exactly. <laughs> and so that's the idea of like being detribed. Is it like every group of people, like your tribe dictates what you believe, what you understand reality to be, everything down from like what you think is funny to what you think, yeah. you know, all this, to you what tastes good to you, to yeah, all this stuff. All and so like rare, rare individuals in human history, like, but more probably in the modern world because there's an ability to like step outside and like interact with people that are not like you at all mm-hmm. is that you become detribed. You start to, and, and, and it's like, uh, I always mention this, but I was listening to, a, a, you know, somebody mentioned that when they first traveled outside of America, they go, Oh, I'm so excited. I'm gonna learn about all type of different cultures. And mm-hmm. that's what they thought. But what they realized is that what they learned most about was America. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And for sure for me, man, that is so real. And that's why like people think, Oh, why would I go travel? Or yeah, it'd be nice, but like it's not that important. No, it is the most important thing because you learn about the your inherited world view. Yeah, and most- how and how it's not exactly it, it doesn't have to be the only truth. Exactly. It is, it is truth. And you just be like, oh, they do it like this, or we do it like this. And I think essentially what it gives you is you see what's different about humans, but then it causes you to be like, but what's the same? Because you see that there's a lot of differences. Maybe at first that's what sticks out. Oh, they do it like that. They eat that. Oh, what the heck? Why do they organize? Why, you know, as far as their organization and how people greet and everything. It's like, but the more time you spend, the more you're like, yeah, but. We're all the same in life. They just care yeah. about their family. Yeah, and They exactly. want to have fun and they want to like laugh and they they're concerned about the same things we're concerned about and and so it's like they just had different inputs. Exactly. They started with different and it's and that's liberation in a sense. Like you're free of just you know because otherwise your whole received paradigm is dictated to you. Yeah. And it's like, look, man, if that's the first way of stepping out of the box. Yeah, it's to realize that. You were given the box. (laughs) Someone someone put you in there. And then you can start to see, okay, what's valuable about the box? Maybe I like some aspects of the box, but not all. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've been loving learning how to live with less here because Mm -hmm. I live with a Balinese family, and Mm -hmm. so like they just, they just less, they just people here use less. Like they just materialistically are just less materialistic. Like you just don't need as much to be okay. And. And I realized that too. It's like, like I don't have hot water. I use a bucket to take a shower, mm-hmm. and and like I was like, oh well, now I don't need to take a shower. Now I don't need a shower anymore to to wash myself. Like I just mm. need like a bucket, a bucket, <laughs> a bucket, or like a stream, or like something moving water. I it's learned like, that in Senegal. Yeah. yeah, it's like, and now it's like so much easier to, to again to live. I need less to be happy. I need less to be comfortable. Like, you know, my sister was here, and my sister's a very, a very standard American kind of person. Um, and uh, you know, she's like, her her friend came with her, and they were, they were both. Um, her friend was much more like, is much more like a rough hike backpacker kind of person. And she's like, oh, you know, bring like a thousand dollars, like maybe fifteen hundred dollars for the whole trip, the whole month and a half trip to Bali. And they spent that in like two weeks. Because she is like, I need air conditioning. I need, you know, yeah. I need like a shower. I need like, 
you know, certain things to be comfortable. Like creature a, comforts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like like all of the American creature comforts. Right, American food. That's the thing. If you yeah, eat American local food, food, you won't spend any money, but yeah. you can easily spend like 20, 25 bucks a meal if yeah. you want to, you know. Oh, yeah, and she did the same thing. Like they eat vegetarian, vegan a lot. Mm-hmm. And like I have no problem with veg- Like There's no problem with understand that. It's it's healthier to eat vegetarian. But, but like I realized that they have delicious vegetables here. It's much easier in Indonesia mm-hmm. To eat veg, to eat healthy vegetables than it is yeah. in America. Local, like, fresh. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I can always get like greens, like dark greens somewhere, which is really nice, really yeah. like refreshing to totally. be able to just sit down to like a spinach face, or you know, it's like more like I think it's like sweet, sweet potato leaves or something. But yeah. still, it's like you know, good hearty veggies, um, and I I feel healthier here, and I even though I'm eating cheaper, you know, like um, and. And I don't need. I don't have to go to the really, the really create the fancy Ubud vegan restaurants because, for the most part, the food they have is this, they're using the same ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, just they're marketing it to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the yeah. So living with living with like yeah, not no no bucket water and eating with my hands and like just like I don't I don't need a, I can sit on the floor and eat food like. Like I thought about like what now what I needed in my apartment my my imaginary apartment in America that I don't have, mm. and it would be like well I don't need a table if I don't need one I don't really need chairs unless I'm being nice to people like, right like dude once you get, live like, in places where they don't have chairs and couches you're like this is way better yeah, sitting like on the floor little course. cushions and stuff yeah, like exactly. that like, bro and you can it's so much more freeing like I just realized I could have an almost entirely open like like living space. It's like, I need a bed mm-hmm. and a pillow and you're set, bro. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, um, and I am glad that, yeah, that's, that's a good, ex- a good experience for sure here. And that's one of the things that I found leaving America is that, you know, the materialism is a big difference. Like a friend of mine here actually said something really poignant to me when I was talking to her about the Trump, the, the, um, the, the wall that he's trying to build. Yeah. And all of the like laws he's suspending. I was that's what I brought it up. He's like, he's he's suspending a ton of laws to do it, like all the environmental laws and like and like Indian, you know, like Native American like heritage acts and all this stuff. Um, but what what it was a Balinese friend of mine too, and I told her I was talking to her about this, and she's like, "What is he trying to do?" And I'm like, "Oh, he's trying to build a wall across the border between Mexico and America to prevent the Mexicans from getting in." And she says, "Well, that he must be very materialistic." And I was like, why do you say that? You know, that's a really interesting response. And she said it's because she think, he thinks a wall can keep people out, like an object. He th- she thinks that, like, an object. Because wow. that's, you know, and then everyone in America is also really materialistic is what I realized because they're buying into it. The people are like, oh, yeah, that'll help. A wall, a thing. The thing is what we need. Yeah, we need more things. object. Yeah. yeah. We need more things. And, and so a wall is... Which a, is patently absurd. I mean, Yeah, exactly. Like, you're not going to... People are going to... Have dug wall, have dug handmade tunnels under the or under the border already. Like it's not going to take long for it for someone to find a way past it. Mm-hmm. Like people are, yeah, people are beyond objects, which is a really another thing that I realized from that, which is really interesting, is that like we we use objects as tools, but we are ourselves are not an mm. object. Well, man, that's a good kind of like yeah. wrap it up because yeah. it ties in with the fact that. We're talking about art and symbols and things that they symbolize and like mm. objects having value because of what they're pointing to, but not just in their physicalness. Yeah. And, you know, the world itself being perhaps a 
series of symbols to be interpreted, you know what I mean? And, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, man, thanks. Of course. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. People hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, who would feel this, who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and seen by more people and then lastly you can support financially on patreon patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content and we have a path and present page on patreon the link is on our soundcloud page soundcloud slash path and present and you'll find the patreon link there and yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global past and present family. One love. Not about it.